0: Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Maker. Welcome to another special edition of Beyond the Album Cover. And in this case, I have a great friend of mine. He is Jeremy White, son of NFL great Reggie White. Teacher extraordinaire, live tutoring, video game extraordinaire, there's much more I can say about this man and you're going to find out more about him right here with yours truly today. Jeremy, welcome to the
1: podcast. Thanks for having me, Joe. Thank you for having me so much. Man, so how you doing? Man, I'm doing well. It's just, this, this new normal of, uh, quarantining during the pandemic has, um, really been testing my, my self-proclaimed introvertedness. Uh, So, you know, I've been, I always was wishing I could just have a ton of time to do nothing. Just play games, sit back, relax, maybe catch up on some books. And now that I actually have it, I'm like, I'm fiending to go out and just do something. Sit down at a restaurant, go see a movie, something. But it's actually pretty good. I've been uh, cleaning my house every day. It always seems like I'm doing laundry and um, teaching these kids remotely, so... I'm good.
0: Yeah, you're a lucky duck, man, because my wife and I, we're both teleworking, and we just got the house to go to an a restaurant on Friday, and it was like going on a mini vacation chase because we both been cooped up in the house and suffering from cabin fever, so I understand your pain. So, let's go ahead and get it started. So, tell the people a little bit about yourself
1: and how you came into the field of teaching. Yeah, I went to undergrad at Elon University, Bachelor in Communications Journalism. I graduated Elon University in 08, which seems like so long ago. Good man. In 08, when I graduated, you know, the economy was kind of worse shape than it is now because there was actually stuff wrong. It wasn't just a pandemic. We were losing money left and right as a nation. So there weren't really a whole lot of journalism jobs out there. So uh, I could do some stuff with freelancing and things like that, but for the most part, I wasn't able to really find anything that, that piqued my interest. So at that time, I did not have a girlfriend. I didn't really have a you know a job to go to. I was kind of free to explore a bunch of different options. And i had always wanted to go to Japan, and I never been, so I decided to look for teaching jobs in Japan, found one where you didn't need a Japanese degree or anything, you didn't need to know Japanese, you just need to have a bachelor's in anything, and you could apply it and go teach English in Japan, and so the plan was to go over there and teach for one year, have a great experience, come back, and then what ended up happening was I taught at nine different schools, over a thousand different kids, age range from two years old all the way up to adults in their 60s, and I enjoyed it so much and wanted to make it a career that I moved back to Charlotte, North Carolina and went to University of North Carolina in Charlotte and got my Master's of Arts in teaching, elementary education. So I've been teaching kindergarten for five years, so total of, I'm in my 10th year teaching, uh, 11th if you want to count when I started doing my list tutoring, which is a combination of online tutoring, in-person tutoring, and my YouTube channel where I try to help parents understand how they can help their children more in the realm of pop culture, not just in the medium of a book and a pen and paper, like being able to identify with your children's interest and then use that in an educational spin, so that you can get your child to do the most critical thinking and do, especially these K-2 years where you're learning to read so that when they're in that three and up years reading to learn, they actually have something that can push them forward and school isn't just something extra to do, it's learning, you know, continue to develop a love for lifelong learning um, and that was the whole point of the tutoring program that I started.
0: Okay, so you mentioned earlier about you living in Japan and teaching over there. Now, musically, is there a bit different from the music over in Japan as to over here in the States are just pretty much just Americanized music but with a far
1: east flavor. It's actually really interesting because the hip hop culture there is um, like the I guess you could say the b-boy, b-girl culture over there is big but also like reggae is huge over there. They love them some reggae man. A lot of different music types are shown um, and of course they're the king of karaoke so anything that has to do with any kind of karaoke song that people can sing together or you know by themselves or whatever those are really popular over there but I did notice paper. K- pop has blown up in the united states and a lot of people didn't know what k-pop was and that's blown up and not integrated in with um oh gosh i forgot the group's name oh man bts yeah yeah so they you know they're integrating with the american but the american artists and things but k-pop and j-pop really don't have that much of a difference in their similarity one thing i did notice their music is more group oriented than ours is they have no problem with like the four five six you know, girl bands, uh, girl groups, or four or five or six or seven, boy groups. Uh, there's actually this really cool group called AKB 47, and AKB stands for Akihabara. And Akihabara is one of the tech districts in the Tokyo metropolitan area. And what they do is they actually hold competition to where these girls can be part of this group, and there's 47 of them. But there's, like, seven main women that are in it. There's a chance to be part of, like, this group of 47 that's called AKB 47. So it's very poppy. It's very cutesy. It's very synchronized dance. And there's rhythm but it's, it's very structured like stiff kind of rhythm to it so they love hip hop but J-pop is still pretty popular over there and then I did notice over there when they had certain artists certain artists when they get into the game in Japan they're well respected for a long time so I know some of my friends in Japan said yeah this, this one artist he's been, he's been making music for 30 years and people just keep buying this stuff the physical medium in Japan of having a CD or going to a store and linking a CD to listen to the music or going and buying an actual CD even as late as 2012 was still a thing. So that was, the, the appreciation for the physical medium was definitely something that was still strong in Japan.
0: Right, because when I think about the K-pop movement and what right. BTS is doing over here in the U.S., it brings to mind to me the teen pop phenomena of the late 90s, early 2000s that we grew up on with fashion Boy, and think Britney, Christina, but it's like that on steroids.
1: Yeah, because they go all out. Like, they do it in a certain way where that, because of the culture of Japan, the boy bands being more, I don't know what's the right word, not cutesy, like if teen girls could fall in after them, like now it seems kind of corny. If we did that with some boy bands now, if a boy band came out and the whole, you know, that movement of NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, that would seem kind of corny now. There, it's not corny at all because it kind of fits the culture anyway. So I thought that was really interesting. You make it as a J-pop star in Japan. It's not only about the music. You're on the game shows that they have, different dramas. Like, it's a whole packet of popularity that they have.
0: So they really fully integrate you and set everything the culture? Correct, yeah.
1: If you get in big, I mean, I started to see... When One Direction was real popular, I mean they still are, but they were real popular, they were everywhere as far as cell phone commercials, random stuff like lotion or music, CDs or car commercials, they're everywhere. So it was almost as if the J-pop brand itself was more important to the pop culture-ness than the music was. At least in my view, in my estimation, because I used to see some of these, these people everywhere, and it just seemed like they took over. It was something actually really interesting. If you were mixed, you were everywhere. So there was this one woman. I think her dad was from Bangladesh, and her mom was Japanese. She was famous for the sake of being famous. She was like the Kardashian over there, but not quite wrong, all the same reasons. It's just literally because she was mixed. Everybody knew her by first name basis. Not like last name basis. Everybody knew her first name basis it was crazy she'd be on the advertisers for local malls she'd be on car commercials she'd be on soap commercials so if you were mixed with Japanese and something else chances are you could shoot up if you got to the right people
0: (laughs) wow crazy because I know over in Japan especially in the Far East they have a strong love for American R&B Teddy Riley and the New Jack Swing sound very revered over there in Japan and then there's this group that just basically came out called Korean Soul they did a couple of records with B.B. Winans and it's just a amazing how Japan and the Far East really have a love and respect for U.S. culture. And vice versa, because half of our technology came from over Japan. The PlayStation, Hondas came from over there. Power Rangers came from over there. So we've had a symbiotic relationship between the two countries.
1: Yeah, it's amazing because if you came over here, you'd have to go to, like, the geek culture to see all that. It's the same over there. When I moved over there, I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm going to wear my Dragon Ball shirt. You know, I'm going to wear my PlayStation shirt out and it'd be normal. People were looking at me like, why do you have that on? That's for like the super geeks. I'm like, I thought that was the culture, but that was the pop culture that came over here. Just as similar as to when I went over there, I thought everybody was going to be technologically savvy because that's where we got all our technology from. Lo and behold, I find out the average person actually didn't even have a home computer. It took them until about 2012 to even get comfortable with using iPads or any kind of tablet. Smartphones didn't blow up over there until like the iPhone 4 or F because they're very what they like they like and they're not going to necessarily change it so a lot of their life used to live on a flip phone even after like the smartphones came out because the flip phone there had better cameras it could connect to the internet it could send email and do all that stuff but at the same time I went over there thinking all these people are going to be so tech savvy and I remember my coworker who was 33 at the time I was like 25 I said you should go watch it on YouTube she looked at me she said Jeremy YouTube you have to pay for that and this is 2011 I said no she goes really I don't trust it i Really? So we've got a lot of their... It's called otaku. Otaku is a geek. We've got a lot of their geek culture here. They've got a lot of our, like, super geek culture or, like, super pop culture there. It's interesting because the layman doesn't really realize what is going on between both the, the symbiotic relationship that you were talking about.
0: Right. So if the music and the media is restrictive over in Japan like it is in neighboring China where they pretty much have a lock on pretty much everything.
1: No. Even though they technically... I think... you yeah, have to fact check me on this. I'm pretty sure we are the only country in the world with like our First Amendment free speech. Like in all the other countries, yeah, you can say certain things, but there's loopholes in the law where they could actually lock you down if they needed to. But no, Japan's not nearly as restrictive at all like China is in any way.
0: So when you first went over there, was there a big language barrier of knowing the language or were there a lot of expatriates over in Japan that could help you out as far as learning the lay of the land? So when I went, I
1: went to a very small prefecture and for your listeners the prefecture is basically just equated to a state you know not legally but just for purposes of understanding. So I lived in a very very small prefecture just to give you a visual. Japan is about the size of California but it has 127 million people but then on top of that though only 8% of the land is able to be lived on because 92% of the land is mountainous and you can't build on it okay so you got 127 million people in a place that's the size of California but they're all scrunched into 8% of the land but when I went though I went to this very small place called Tottori T-O-T-T-O-R-I and in the entire prefecture okay for context in Tokyo the entire Tokyo metropolitan you have like Shinjuku Shibuya you have Akihabara you have Asakusa, you have Ueno, you have Tokyo, and in each of those parts of Tokyo, you have millions and millions of people. Like Shibuya itself, that's where Shibuya and Shinjuku are where like the Japanese go to party. Shinjuku itself has 12 million people. So just keep that in context. That's not even a prefecture. That's just a part of a prefecture. So I lived in Toktori, and the entire prefecture of Toktori was 600,000 people, okay? So when I got over there, yes, there was a language barrier. My coworkers knew English, and the people I took over from knew English, and I met a few English teachers over there not necessarily expats but just teachers that were over there teaching at a different company but it didn't overwhelm me surprisingly because it was like the first time I guess I'm learning the language and not having to worry about a grade so what I did was I just resolved to first learn how to read because they have four alphabets I learned how to read two well I knew that the third one is very easy but the two of them I tried to learn how to read knocked that out in two weeks then I just started building my vocabulary and I started just reading some books about you know how to put grammar together to this day I'm not anywhere near fluent but at the same time if I had to go back over there now I would be able to carry on a conversation to get what I need to make sure I'm fed to find directions to talk about my hobbies to talk about where I'm from all the stuff and to get to know somebody. There wasn't a huge barrier there because I was willing to go out and make mistakes whereas some of my other friends they were there for years and met a guy who was there for 20 years and he could barely he didn't even know his WH question. And I'm like how have been lived here for 20 years and you don't know how to say who, what, when, where, and why? I don't know it's just to each their own right? But if you go to Japan, though, you have to go with somebody who knows what they're doing because as soon as you get out of the airport, the English is very nil. You're not going to have it
0: right and the thing that I find interesting now with the fact that the culture over there has been popular here in America but it really has exploded in recent years thanks to the success of Crazy Rich Asians Fresh Off the Boat BTS and North from Queens so it's a good thing to see all cultures especially over in that side of the country represented now by you being over there you were probably able to see the impact of eSports over there but were you surprised at the fact that it took off so huge here in America with Twitch
1: and other streaming game sites. So I wasn't so surprised that it took off here because I did my senior exit in high school on the educational benefits of video games and how there were so many misconceptions behind them and so I've always been a proponent that you have this billion dollar industry the billion dollar industry is not just a turn, shoot, get points for killing like there's a lot of intricate things that go into some of these games but they don't really get talked about because you're always going to talk about the Mortal Kombat and the Call of Duties and the God of Wars and the Dooms and and things like that and the Conqueror's Bad Burden. You're going to talk about all the negative aspects. But then when Minecraft finally took off, I was really cheering that on because I'm thinking to myself, well, people are starting to realize games have more of a, a value than just entertainment. Like, the entertainment can be educational. So I wasn't surprised that Twitch took off because you could feel it. Once I started realizing how popular it was to watch somebody play a video game, when I started to watch somebody play a game that I knew I couldn't play because I'm not a horror genre person. I can't play horror games. But I am interested in some of the horror genre stories, like, for example, Five Nights at Freddy's. So when I moved back to the States, I started watching somebody play through it so that I could know the story because it intrigued me. And I knew if I was doing that, these other kids that are not able to pick up a controller, they're probably doing the same thing. So did I know it was going to happen at the rate it did, a la Fortnite? No. Was I surprised when it did come down or when Overwatch went from eight? teams in their eSports league to 20 in just a year? Uh, no, because, and then now you're getting to see how popular it is. There's some people out there who did not know what NBA 2K was until ESPN started streaming. And they probably thought they were looking at a real game. These are the things gamers have been touting to people for years, but it's always been looked at through the lens of entertainment and it rocks your brain. Just to answer your original question, so I'm not surprised, but I am very happy that it's kind of getting in the forefront because this will eventually lead people who were never athletic. They didn't necessarily have the academics. This will end up leading to them be able to get scholarships from major universities as esports starts to take off. I'm not sure the colleges that have started, but I know there's a few colleges that have esports leagues. So if you start to open that can of worms, you eventually see your Alabamas and your Clemsons and your Tennessees and your Wisconsin. They'll all have an eSports league for some particular games. I can't wait for that reality.
0: Yeah, I can't wait for that either. Can you imagine a Rivals.com website of the top 300 gamers across the country? He's a five-star Call of Duty, four-star Mortal Kombat, five-star NBA PK, And who would think that you actually have people whose full-time job it is to just sit around, play video games all day, and to go to these tournaments where, if you play your cards right, you can win a good amount of
1: money. Right. It goes against the grain because one thing we're learning, this remote learning, e-learning, virtual learning, whatever you want to call it, time, where children are forced to learn at home, I think it's hitting parents in the forefront. It's hitting them right in the face of, oh, my goodness, because they can't keep their kids occupied with just worksheets, okay? And they're seeing that reality that their kids are losing motivation. And teachers are not able to just keep them occupied with worksheets either because they are far away from them. So we're going to have to move into new creative techniques of synchronous and asynchronous learning. would usually be in the classroom. We'd be one-on-one with them. Asynchronous is when we kind of send them off to do their own thing with like a guided, like a hyperdocs or a guided sort of thing where they're able to demonstrate their learning virtually. And I think what this is going to end up doing, it's forcing the administrators and the superintendents and the principals and the teachers to find new creative ways to allow the children to show their learning and the depth of their knowledge rather than just a paper-pencil test, which is something that people have been pushing for years, but a lot of districts are scared to do something or, you know, put a broad brush over it. And part of it is the equity issue, right? Not everybody has the connection to the Internet. But even if we made it where it was project-based learning sort of thing, where they could do the same kinds of thing, but instead of submitting it electronically, they could, you know, take a picture of it, of their project that they made at home using household items. So we have to get really creative as educators to make sure that we're allowing our children to learn at a certain pace and differentiate their instruction while also promoting their creativity so that they can be prepared for the jobs that don't exist yet. Correct.
0: And for those of you that do not know, I used to teach Special Ed, actually, and I can understand wholeheartedly what Jeremy is talking about with the issues with equity because when you teach at a school that's Title I, for those of you that don't know, Title I schools are schools that are in mostly remote, rural areas and they tend to get the most federal funding. That you see a lot of kids that come from backgrounds where it's a one-parent home, parent is probably off having issues with substance abuse or incarceration, living with grandparents, and then there's just a whole bunch of other issues that, as teachers and education professionals, we do not feed because we're not with them after 3 o'clock. Right. A
1: lot of it, because I was at Title I school for a couple of years, and I think the incorrect perception is that because they are from those particular situations, that somehow we need to dumb things down for them, which is totally against best practices, we actually need to keep those expectations up or even possibly higher because a lot of research shows that when you keep those expectations high, no matter what the situation is for the child, that child does not want to stay in disequilibrium, basically doesn't want to stay in confusion. When you're learning something new, you go into disequilibrium, you're confused, you don't know how to solve that Rubik's Cube. Then as you start to acquire different strategies, you get back towards equilibrium and you want to figure it out. And so... We have to figure out what we can do for those students and figure out seek for understanding, right? What situation are they in but we're still going to hold them accountable and we're still going to have high expectations for them but we're going to seek for understanding first to see how we can differentiate our instruction and how we can build that self efficacy because then after they get their motivation, they are not going to look at their situation as a negative until we start telling them oh well we don't expect you to do it because of your situation.
0: So going to K-12 education when you were coming up in the school system as a student did a lot of your teachers use music as a way to try to hook you and to be able to get the lesson or were they more along the traditional path of sit and get you're right at the blackboard and you get it how I teach it and not differentiate their teacher methods
1: in my experience now my mom differentiated some stuff because we had to homeschool um, shout out to Sarah White she, she homeschooled for a little bit and she used to let me show my work in different ways but for the most part when I grew up, yeah, it was just a come in, sit down, take the lesson, take notes, and let's go from there. And I know that I'm still to this day surprised that I'm a teacher because I did not like school growing up. I didn't hate it. I was good at it. I liked the social aspect of it. I liked my teachers. I just didn't like the prospect of, oh, okay, study this, three weeks, high-stakes test, take this test. Oh, gosh, didn't do well, can't redo it. You know, that whole just back and forth, the entirety of my K-12 years. One thing that I've actually done in my classroom is I do use music. Music is always planned in my classroom because some of your listeners might know that some of them don't but research has shown that if you play pop music during your teaching your children are more likely to remember the lesson it is that you taught because it activates a certain portion of their brain but I believe the dopamine helps out with the memory for that time. So some kind of music is always planned but it fits the mood. We have like a clean up song music and it's not like the clean up, clean up it's an actual song with cadence and rhythm and, and they know where the midpoint is and they know where they should be. We got a song for packing up. We have a song for when it's writing time. And then, then the great thing is it controls the mood of the classroom too. Because if I need to get the class's attention, I barely ever in the past two, three, four years have to raise my voice. Because all I do is turn down the music. The kids realize something changed. It's much more effective than turning off a light. And they realize something changed. But their chatter slowly comes down. I ask my question. They answer. The music comes back up. They get started to do what they're doing. Some of your listeners are like, really? Can it really can do that? Yeah, I can do it with. Five Five year olds, you could do it with your ten year olds and your fifteen year olds, like because it can happen that young. It can happen in any grade.
0: Yeah, because there was one teacher at a previous school where I was working at. She would use Bill Withers' "Lovely Day" as their song to get started throughout the day. And then when I was teaching, I would have music playing silently in the background as the kids are working for that. It can help retain focus, better concentration. Like you stated, research has shown that when you have music playing, the kids tend to focus a little bit more. And if you take your lessons and make it to either a song or a rap or something that can easily be accessed into the front part of their brain, they can be able to retain it more and be able to do well on that particular assignment.
1: Absolutely. I remember I went to Ron Clark Academy in Atlanta about four years ago. Then I saw this man teach an entire lesson, and he said not one word. He turned on a song, and he got best practices 80% of the talking in the classroom should be done by the students 20% should be the teacher so what he did was he started a song and he started teaching his lesson he would be very dramatic with his movements and things and obviously the kids knew what some of the movements meant so you know there had to be a little bit of background teaching on that but they knew it was under movement, and they started raising their hand, they started answering the question without him even saying a word. And then when he got done with the lesson, he turned off the music. It was dead silent, and he goes, what did we just do? And then the kids are standing up explaining it. And if they explained it wrong, he goes, no, I don't know what lesson you were watching. That's not what we were doing. Goes on to the next kid. So the kids are debating. There's so much higher-order thinking going on because not only do they have to explain, but they had to interpret, and then they had to analyze what was going on. So their depth of knowledge was... So deep. I have tried to do that in some of my math classes and it's worked beautifully. So many times, the kids, they can't talk over each other because the, the music is too high, and I'm calling on them, and I'm doing call and response without saying anything. So, yeah, I, I know that not everybody is musically inclined They may not be comfortable teaching a class with a bunch of music, especially some of the, uh, the older teachers who, you know, ch- children should be seen, not heard sort of thing. But I'm telling you, if you can figure out a way to put music in your classroom, and it doesn't even need to be as elaborate as I just described, it's such a benefit for the student.
0: Right, because I was playing a Kidz Bop version of Juju on the beat for some of my students doing math. And the whole time in my head, I was thinking, don't let Mr. Mason come out and do nucky if you buck. Please don't let Mr. Major come out and do Let you if you buck. Cause you gotta remember, we're both the same age, so, you know, the, the whole Little John, Cronk era, that was very big uh-huh. when we were in college, and how you take some of those songs, make it kid-friendly, even do it into a classroom chant, and you like, uh, don't throw bows at Little Johnny out by the lunchroom table because you're too high off of, uh, Trill Deals,
1: never ever. I know that's right. So I try to get some of the kids because some of the kids that I taught this year they wouldn't have even culturally speaking, ethnically speaking, they wouldn't even been close to that. So I try to introduce them to some older stuff. And my math song is the dance band, dance dance, disco jazz, you know. And so every time we start math, we do math math, and then they go so much math. Math, math, so much math. And then, you know, they get started with it. So even though we're virtually learning, when I'm switching what we're going to go from uh, writing or reading to math, all I have to say is, Math, math, and they're like, so math, and then I leave that in the background as I'm teaching them on the left. So they get ready, their brains get primed, and they're like, okay, we're switching from this to this now. So yeah, they, they got introduced to in the dance band, five years old. Okay,
0: <laughs> oh, okay good. So now maybe if you doing some exercise, maybe you can play a little bit of dance music like the Electric Fly or my
1: favorite, the Purchase <laughs> It's time to start the math. It's time to stop the math. Hey, hey, hey. Stop the math. Stop the math. Stop the math. Yeah, you just, you got to But you know what? It, this kind of learning that we're talking about requires teachers to allow their personalities to run free without sense of embarrassment or reprimand from administration because it doesn't look, quote, unquote, like, teaching. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. I've been blessed with some excellent principals in the past. They know what I'm trying to do. They let me take risks. I've been teaching like this for the past five years.
0: Yeah, because I would think if I was still in the classroom, I probably would have had maybe a new orders bounce record for a certain time of the day in the class. Kid-friendly, of course. And then when it's time to be done, taking the test, kind of do a kid-friendly version of Two Live Crew where it's like... Cast down, pickles up. That's the way we
1: like to learn. Cast down, pickles up. That's the way we make like them learn. Yeah, you know I mean? something like that because there's so much opportunity to create that on your own. There's so many programs now. I know for my YouTube channel, I use this website called Epidemic Sounds. Epidemic Sounds just has everything. It's $15 a month, and it lets me use their music, you know, without getting top for copyright on YouTube. But even, like, things like that with instrumental, you could overlay that instrumental down. I mean, computers can do so much now. And then you could just make that 15-second clip and have put that on your phone and then just be good to go, man.
0: Wow, yeah, because... And another school I worked at, they had, you remember talent shows. They had a talent show for the end of the year where the kids can show off their skills. And they had Mm -hmm. this one kid singing Purple Rain by Prince. And I was just blown back because this kid couldn't have been no more than maybe 10, 11 years old. And here she is singing Purple Rain by Prince. And I was just amazed at the fact that someone that young could be – musically inclined to know the artists that they weren't really familiar with because Frank was more of our era and our parents' era. So growing up, were you restricted to listening to certain music in the house going up, and what were you listening to?
1: Absolutely, I was restricted. My father wasn't letting me listen to a ton of stuff. We had a lot of gospel going on, and we had a lot of old-school music going on. So we had James Brown. We had Zappa Roger. We had Shaka Khan. Whitney Houston. Earth, Wind & Fire. Dance Band. Maze. You know, all that. I the brothers, age appropriate. You know, we had all that. That's what I came up with. That's what was usually being bumped out in. Any, anything now that you can listen to on the oldest stage, the Band draws, any of that stuff, that's what I was coming up on. So it wasn't really until I was probably 12 that I started getting into pop music anyway, like Backstreet Boys. Um, I remember I got a TLC album. I never tried to hide stuff from my parents because I knew if they found out, I'd be in worse trouble. People thought it was Reggie. I was scared of I wasn't scared of Reggie. I was scared of Sarah. I didn't try to hide a lot of stuff. So I asked my mom, I was like, can I get this TLC album? She said, all right. So she said, but I got to listen to it first. Let me tell you what songs you can and can't listen to. Bro, I was so honest. She had marked off probably 10 of the 14 songs. She goes, you can't listen to them. And so I only listened to four songs on that album. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, you're talking about
1: the Crazy Sexy Cool album? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I knew that, like, special was probably on the no-no list. A lot of that was on the no She knew I really wanted it because of Scrubs, and then I think I was able to listen to Beautiful, and there was something else, Waterfalls, and, uh, maybe one more. But, yeah, like, Silly Ho, that had such a crazy beat, but I couldn't listen to that. She was like, no, you can't listen
0: to oh, that. man. <laughs> so you never had the luxury of, let's say, going to a best friend's house, and they had the... Dirty version of the album because me, I was one of the first of my peer group in middle school to get the uncensored version of the Slim Shady LP on cassette oh, on wow. a full trip. I was able to walk oh, into, wow. I believe it was Sam Goody, no ID, no nothing. And when I opened up that bag and showed my boys the tape, they're like, "Oh, you got the new Eminem!" And they were asking me to dub it for them. For those who don't know what dubbing is, definitely take a blank cassette tape and record onto that. The cassette that you got. So I was in heaven. So I mentioned at the top of the show that your dad was the great defensive football Hall of Famer Reggie White. So when was it for you that you knew that my dad
1: was more than dad and he's a big deal? After he died. After he died and in probably my mid-20s is when I realized that. Actually, not even probably. I remember watching The Football Life with him, Jerome, and I kept pushing it back because I knew I needed to collect myself because when I watched that, I was going to be a wreck. But I did not realize how big of a deal he was So I was probably about 24 years old because he was dead growing up so much so that, and you know this, but your listeners don't, so much so that I was a Cowboys fan. I didn't cheer for him. His team, I cheer for the Cowboys. I like the Dallas Cowboys. I still like the Dallas Cowboys. And it bugged him for a while. I didn't actually know it really bugged him. But on a, on a personal level, it, it bugged him. He was like, why is my son not cheering for me? It's my like, firstborn. It's my son not cheering for me. And he sat me down one time. I was nine years old. He said, he said, Jeremy, why don't you cheer for your dad? Then I said, Dad, you just dad. <laughs> that, that's it. I came up with an analogy later on. It's like if your dad works for Pepsi and you drink Coca-Cola, that's it. Or if he works for Chevy and you like Ford, that's how I equated it. And so after I told him that, I think he got to know because I wasn't trying to be vindictive or anything, it's just I wasn't a fan of his team. I was a fan of him. You know, I wanted him to do well and we celebrated and stuff and he won the Super Bowl and all that. But at the end of the day, I was always going to be a Cowboy fan. So after he passed is when I really started realizing how great he was on the field because one... More As I started to grow up and become a man and I started talking to some of his old friends or his acquaintances or his college teammates or whoever I came across, they would just start telling me stories. I called Randall Cunningham not long after my dad had passed. I said, Randall, how much did my dad bench? He said he didn't bench, and I didn't understand what that meant. And when he said he didn't bench, he means he didn't do one rep. He, at the Eagles facility, and I guess the Packers facility too, they did multiple reps. So he set an Eagles record for bench press of three hundred and seventy pounds seventeen times. So he didn't have like a max bench. So I asked Randall, I said, But Randall like, what do you think it was? He goes, Man, Jeremy, we never did it like that. But if we did it, he probably would have been tipping eight hundred. I was like, But <laughs> so it was kind of that I started I was like, wow, he was he was kind of a big deal. When they did the 100th team this year for the hundred year of the NFL, and just to hear LT talk about him and Bill Belichick talk about him and just how, you know, things like that and then watching the football life or just seeing, sometimes he'll go viral on Twitter or Facebook, that one of him throwing Chris Carter in the warm moon with one hand and just start tossing Larry Allen to the side like he was nothing with one arm. And I saw all the work he put in when I was a kid because he used to work out for like three hours a day during the offseason. He used to work out like they're trying to require people to work out now during the mandatory off-season workouts. He was doing that on his own before it was required. So we lived in Tennessee, and we had 33 acres of land, and sometimes he would just go run hills. He built himself a huge uh, gym in the back because he couldn't go to public gyms because he couldn't get his work done because he'd get swarmed. So he built himself a public gym that was probably 3,000 square feet. This thing was huge. I've seen him work so hard. He got bloodshot eyes. He was throwing up. I'm there from like three to six, just boom, 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 go, go, go. And so I keep looking back on it even to this day. And I I talked to my cousin. And, you know, me and my cousin, we were playing basketball against each other recently. We're both out of breath. And I looked at my cousin and I go, I don't understand how my dad did this for 17 years. Two years in the USFL and then 15 years in the NFL at an elite level. And he kept his body in such great condition for 17 years, not even counting college. So you're talking 20-something years. That's just like, man, that makes me tired just thinking about it. And to answer your question, I didn't realize how great he was on the field or how much he meant to people off the field, like in the pulpit and the mentoring and things like that, and how many marriages him and my mom helped out with. Many people came to them for advice and guidance. I didn't realize any of this until my mid-20s.
0: Wow. Yeah, because you think about it, how the NFL, at the time when your dad was playing, it was back when they were doing two-a-day practices during training camp. Well, now it's only one a day, and they've changed a lot of the rules to make the game safer, so the defense can't really play like the way they played back then, and your dad was also a pioneer for free agency once he left Philadelphia to go to Green Bay.
1: Yeah, even then I didn't realize what was going on. I didn't realize that he was putting his career on the line by suing the NFL. And it was him and a bunch of other players but None of the other players put their name on it. He put his name on it. And I can say this. He was actually worried later on in his career that they blackballed him from the Hall of Fame since he was the one who initially sued the NFL. He sometimes wondered out loud that to my mom. But obviously they didn't, so that was good. But, yeah, he took a big risk. And when I say big risk, you know, some of your listeners might not be that old. They may be 20 and under. My dad's first signing bonus as a Philadelphia Eagle, not as a woe is me, okay? I don't want your listeners to take it as that. Just for comparison. Because this is necessary, especially when you're talking about some of the older players even before him who have so many health problems and they can't get a dime from the NFL as far as health insurance because they didn't make that much money. My dad's signing bonus after getting drafted out of the USFL in the supplemental draft was $150,000. So you think about that. When Cam Newton got drafted, or when all of these guys in recently in the first round this year got drafted, C.D. Lamb is getting drafted, right, at 17 as a wide receiver with the Cowboys. C.D. Lamb ain't making $150,000 that year. C.D. Lamb is making millions. You know what I mean? So it's really interesting because he went out on a limb and sued a league that was helping him provide for his family with no guarantee that they'd ever let him back in that league. I thought that was pretty profile.
0: well wow. and your parents they met while they were both at the university of tennessee so how were they able to navigate the life of a married couple when he had such a high profile job as an athlete and we've seen the stories of some athletes divorcing remarrying getting with the wrong person taking their money so how were your parents able to stay away from the usual narrative that comes with being the spouse of a professional athlete they put god
1: first man god was the centerpiece of their whole relationship looking back at it They both had such mutual respect and trust for each other that they knew that they could come to each other with anything. They were literally best friends. I didn't see their more intimate side, obviously, like the more snuggling or whatever they did, you know, that kind of thing. But I saw the general one thing that they did that was great. They never brought me and my sister in on an art. They never pitted each of us against the other. Like, I've seen parents do it multiple times being a teacher. They come to me, and I may have a conference with Dad, and Dad's ragging about Mom. Right, or I'm having a conference with mom and mom's bragging about dad. I'm like, you don't need to be bringing your child's teacher in the middle of your drama. That needs to stay at home. Or if y'all stay party? That just needs to stay between y'all. So one thing that they did, they put God as the cornerstone of their entire marriage, and they leaned on God when they were going through troubles. We had troubles growing up, especially when my dad started learning a lot of uh, Hebrew that he was learning, and we started diving more deep into the Bible, not doing some of the traditions that we were doing before, and adding new traditions that we weren't used to, and just that whole transition time. And plus just me and my sister growing up being teenagers, there was going to be conflict, right? And there's conflict in every relationship and every walk of life. But they trusted each other and they did not let anybody come in the middle of their marriage they quite literally cut people out of their lives if those people were trying to mess with their marriage not from a fidelity standpoint but if you just had people trying to come in Uh, my mom had my dad's back like nobody's business because my dad would have lost all of his money if he didn't have my mom not because he would have been going out buying Bentleys buying big houses you know spending money out buying drinks he wasn't a drinker but he would have given his money all away to people who he thought needed it like that. that's what would have happened so my mom was that buffer. Like, no, Reg, we can't put our money there. We gotta save it, put it here, or we gotta make sure it's going to this organization and not that one. She was a hawk, man. She made sure that nobody took advantage of him. Because even though he was 6'6", 300 pounds, he wore his heart on his shoulder. You could convince him if you came enough with a, a story, and he thought you were in need, and he trusted you with any inkling. More than likely, he was gonna try to help you out. And my mom had to be that buffer. Like, whoa, Reg, you just mm-mm, you just met them. No, no, we're gonna let's see how we can work together. But no, not just the giving. Not there. We got other stuff to take care of over here. So that's really what kept them together. They were a team. Yeah, they sound
0: very similar to me like the Dungies. Tony Dungy and his wife, very God-centered, God-fearing, strong marriage and good people. And the one thing that struck me about you when I first met you, shout out to my boy Ashton and shout out to Alexia. <laughs> Alexia shout out. Yeah, and yeah, also yeah. Chris. Shout out to Chris Lee who is now the fourth anchor for WRAL TV5 Raleigh Don. That's the one thing that, yeah, doing big things. That's the one thing that struck me about you when I first met you is that how humble you were and you didn't have that sense of do you know who my dad is about you when I read the book that you wrote years ago. It outlined perfectly how they raised you and your sister to be normal, everyday kids. Like if you wanted something,
1: the ATM wasn't always open and they just treated you guys normal. You know, and part of that was because we went everywhere with them, my mom said I didn't want anybody else raising my kids because she was like why don't you get them a nanny? Like you guys are kind all over the country. they I like, no, there's our kids. They're coming with us. My mom said there was one time, I believe they were going to San Francisco for something. And I was probably four, and my sister was two. And It was one of the first trips that they took when we were younger, and they did not take us with them. Oh, I'm bawling my eyes out, apparently. My sister's bawling her eyes out. My mom's crying. She doesn't want to leave us. And then I guess when they came back from that trip, they just had told each other, they said, we're never going anywhere without our kids again. So we went to every single church with them during the off-season. The only place we didn't go is during the season when he would go to away games. We didn't go with him, obviously. During the off-season, we would go. And what They were teaching us, well, I don't think they realized they were doing this. They were teaching us how to adapt in a lot of different situations because we met a lot of different people, different races, different cultures, different ethnicities, different religions, different viewpoints. We were thrown in at the adult table more often than not, and we had to know how to act. So we kind of grew up in that way a little faster than most other kids, but at the same time if I started to try to get involved in some of these adult conversations, not inappropriate, just adult conversations my dad would be like, this is grown folks talking you're not part of this, and you know, he would shut me down real fast, so that humility of no, just because my last name's wife doesn't mean that I get to do you know everything that the way I want to there are still going to be rules and procedures they never let me and my sister's head get too big because it came down to we had to earn what we got so I remember one of my greatest pastimes was my mother, she wised up, and instead of buying me a video game, she would get me a coupon for a video game on Christmas or on my birthday. So that throughout the year, because different games got released at different times, I could then save up these coupons that she made and I could say, I want to cash out my N64 game now. And then we'd go to the store and we'd get it. Or if I got like allowance, I would get like $7 a week. Right? One of my friends, he would get $10 a week. I 10? Like, and so I would just put that in a pencil box. She would also give me, when I got straight A's, a straight A coupon. What do you want to get? You got straight A's. Oh, I think I'm just going to hold on to this. I learned a lot about saving and I had to earn things and it wasn't just a we and about. Oh, look at that. Let me, let's get that. No. You're not getting
0: that? <laughs> I never heard of the coupon method for the report cards. Now, me, I had the straight cash value where a certain cash amount would be based on a letter grade. So, five bucks for an A, maybe four, four B, and so on and so forth. But the coupon method, very interesting. Now, she was that's- very strict about it, man. If I had
1: one B on there, she's like, you don't get straight that coupon? <laughs> I was like, No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, so now your dad rounded out his career with the Carolina Panthers before he retired. So growing up in and around Charlotte, did you ever run into any interactions with a lot of the circles of kids whose parents were athletes, primarily Steph and Steph
1: Curry? So we did. My sister was it more running into that herself uh, than I was because she was at, uh, she was helping out at a monastery school that I believe Aisha Curry uh, or, or Steph No, not Aisha. Steph's mom was running or helping run. I'm not sure. So she had interactions with the Currys more than I did. Um, My mom definitely did. Um, I'm not sure before my dad passed if he did. I am sure because we had this Christian Athletes Conference. It wasn't one of the main ones. The Currys were there, and I remember I was about 15 years old because Steph is, what, 31? Steph's 31 years old. Yeah, he's a couple years younger than us. Yeah, so this is what happened. We were all playing basketball, and I don't know this person from that person. I'm just showing up to this Christian Athletes Conference because my dad's there. And I know some people, like I I met Metal Luck Lemon from the Harlem Trotter. Grant Hill was there one year. Jeremiah Trotter was there. Like, there was a bunch of people that I knew. James Stark was there. Like, there was a bunch of people that I knew. I couldn't have sat down and told you, that's that person, that's that person, that's that person, because... One, football with the helmets, and then two, I didn't watch a whole lot of NBA when I was younger. But I played basketball against Steph Curry. So we were just doing a pickup game, and, like, Jeremiah Trotter was playing center, and I was, like, trying to box him out, which was crazy. But they kept talking, they go, hey, they they go, that's Dell's boy that devil boy hitting them threes and I was like I don't even know who that is you know I'm like I don't even know but this dude Seth was draining these threes at 13 years old like he was just like, you couldn't guard him he wasn't like I don't think he was doing the ball skills or stuff but it was like he was the youngest one playing in the pickup game he was 13 we were playing with people that were in their mid 30s right so it was just a group of us like just random people and Seth was there I mean, he was just draining them threes, man. So I, like, I think back to that. I'm like, man, I played basketball with Steph Curry. I feel like somebody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, because I had a chance to see Steph up close and personal when he was at Davidson. It was the season when they made their run to the Elite Eight, and they were playing UNCG at the gym, and he torched us for I think at least 30. But his size looked like an itty-bitty boy. You didn't think that he would become the player that he is
1: now. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because, I mean, even when he was 13 draining these threes, I've seen people drain threes before, you know. But, and he was setting up more. Now he's obviously perfected. He just, boom, hit it from anywhere. But he just didn't look like he had the build. But at the time, like I said, I was 13. He was 13. You're not really going to tell. But even in Davidson, because I do remember kind of watching him up close when uh, they aired Elon versus Davidson last game of the season on ESPN2. And that was like the only time Elon was on national stage. And we were pumped because... uh, I say we, I did not play on the basketball team. I just mean we as the university. We were pumped because if we beat Davidson, we would have been like the 64th in the, in the NCAA bracket that year. So we were pumped, man. And Steph yeah, Curry beat the brakes off us, man. Yeah.
0: yeah, everybody has had their I was torched by Steph story. Now, have you been watching the first two episodes of The Last Dance, the 10-part documentary of 98 Bulls? Oh, I
1: have. Yes, I have. So have you ever had the chance to meet his heirloom? Yes, I have. I'll never forget it. I was three years old. My mom, we were living in Jersey. My mom took me to um, 76ers versus Bulls. So I'm three years old. What is this, 89? Okay. And I believe the Sixers won that game. But all I could remember, I don't even remember the game. All I can remember is telling my mom, I want to meet Michael Jordan. And I just figured it was a given. I didn't think it was a given because we were who we were. I guess my mom said, I'm going to try. You know, I, I don't know how she did it. We were running in the same circles as Dr. J. So she asked Dr. J, Dr. J was at the game. She asked Dr. J if we could go to the locker room and meet Michael Jordan. So I'm pumped. I'm like, man, I'm about to meet Michael Jordan. I'm about to meet Michael Jordan. And my mom said, but damn it. Here's Dr. James. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't want to meet a doctor, Mom. I want to meet a basketball player. And so I was just floored. I'm like, why is she telling me about this doctor? I'm trying to meet Michael Jordan. Little did I know, I was right next to Dr. J. He was in the trench coat, and I mean, he was, I was just like, something back in that moment, I was like, right next to Dr. J. Didn't realize the presence I was in with that. And all I could think about was meeting Michael Jordan. And so I got to meet Michael Jordan, took a picture with him. My mom has that picture somewhere. And it was just, I was like, awesome. He signed a little basketball for me, which unfortunately I still don't have because a family member of mine gave it to our Rottweilers because they thought it was just a replica, not an original signing. And so that ball got destroyed. (laughs)
0: Oh man Think about how much money That would have been worth
1: Oh man It was He signed that for me man And I was just like Hey what What? ended up Happening to it And my uncle was like Oh I gave that ball To the dogs They they wanted the ball I was like That was a real signature And they were like Oh and that was just my heart sunk, man. But, hey, things happen.
0: Crazy, but <laughs> the thing about Dr. J, he had that smooth personality. Like, he could still go to the cookout dressed in all white. And when Frankie Beverly Mays, before let go, comes on, he's up there doing it. Because he has that look of, uh, I could still take your grandma if you ain't care.
1: That's right. I didn't realize that was the swag I was feeling when I was three years old. But that's absolutely the swag I was feeling when I was three years old. Like, just standing next to the man. Hey, you know, when I'm that young, everybody. He looked larger than life because, you know, you're three years old, man. But, yeah, that was the time I got to meet him.
0: Right, but the thing that makes The Last Dance so special with the viewing and everybody tuning in is that the fact that you get to hear Michael speak because he rarely gives interviews. Yeah,
1: which I didn't know that about. One of the things just from an artistic standpoint that they're doing with this, I love the overlaying of the storytelling and how smooth it is. Because they told a lot of different stories over these past two episodes to where it wasn't completely linear, and yet it all is making sense. And I'm just like, this is amazing. I, I'm enjoying every minute of it.
0: Right. And I like the fact that they used LL Cool J's I'm Bad for the 63-point explosion against the Celtics in the playoffs. Even though Jordan was coming up alongside when hip-hop was breaking but he necessarily really didn't embrace hip-hop. I think the first team that really embraced hip-hop was Michigan Fab Five with Chris Webber, Jalen Rose, Juwan Howard, Jimmy King, and Ray Jack.
1: Yeah, you're probably right about that. I hadn't even really thought about that intersection of hip-hop and the NBA because now it's ubiquitous, right? You can't have the NBA without hip-hop, marriage made in heaven. But I never really thought about the fact that it wasn't really integrated back then because you were in the early stages of it. It was the 90s and Snoop and the West Coast and the East Coast yeah it wasn't as ubiquitous that's a good point
0: right but do you think the NFL is still a little bit more conservative as compared to the other sports leagues in terms of embracing diversity and change and standing on issues because as you and I both know what has been going on with Kaepernick and how they pretty much, I think it might have blackballed him from the league for speaking out. I believe he got
1: blackballed because there's no reason he can't be somebody's backup at the very least. Correct me if I'm wrong, I think he did say he didn't want to be a backup. So I don't know, maybe I'm a little off with that. But yeah, I think he did. For what The only evidence you really need is not even this year, but just going back to last year and looking at the lower 12 quarterbacks. You mean to tell me the 12 worst quarterbacks last year, you mean tell me they would want to take a chance on Kaepernick and replace their, they would rather have Josh Rosen on their team than Colin Kaepernick. Like, you know, things like that. There's at least 12 guys from last year you were like, you would not even want to bring him in for a word. like the Steelers. Steelers, fine example. You would rather have uh, Duck Hodges on your team or uh, Mason Rudolph on your team than Colin Kaepernick. But I also think, too, I don't know if it was like a group blackballing. I'm not going to say that, but I do think that some coaches and some GMs and and the owners just didn't want the headache of having to to deal with Even if the blowback was unjustified, which it is, I don't think they just wanted to deal with the headache with it. And that's unfortunate. So was there a conspiracy blackballing? of? Now, granted, though, blackballing, you would only need to get two owners to agree not to sign them. So that probably happened. I think the the league overall is a bit more averse to changing some of their policies up because they are in the privileged position of being able to do so because... The NFL runs the country. someday they take it over a day of the week. So they just know with the power that they have and what they do and don't have to bend to. So I've been more encouraged the fact that they let things like celebrations come back in because I never thought I'd see the day on that. So I think it comes down to they know that they're the most powerful. So they're not going to try to change because they are like, well, we don't need to change when we're already raking in billions of dollars a year.
0: And I think the two things that the NFL should take cue from with the NBA is that they should make their contract fully guaranteed because... Because the NFL is a very much more physical sport than the NBA. And also, too, with the retired players, because I know the NBA PA, they take care of their retirees and old school guys that paved the way. While wow. you were talking about earlier how the NFL, a lot of the older players are having trouble paying medical bills and getting small pensions. And then, knowing what we know now about CTE probably suffering from
1: the infection. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if the argument ever comes down, well, there's not enough money. B.S. Because all you need to do is you raise the uh, TV contract up. You mean tell me Fox ain't going to dish out some more money to have NFL? Especially in our cord-cutting society. Live sports are the only guarantee that somebody's actually going to watch an ad these days anymore. Live sports carry over whatever show comes on after that live sports gets a bump in rating. You mean tell me, you're talking about the sports king of the nation. If they wanted to find the money to take care of these players, especially these players that are like, yeah, can't pay their medical bills, they've been fighting... Look up a guy by the name of Joe DeLamalier. Joe DeLamalier used to play for the Buffalo Bills. This guy has been pounding the pavement for 20 years about how corrupt the NFL is being when it comes down to these retired benefits for the players. Because some of your listeners, they just need to go back and look at some of these contracts and the fact that when people got drafted, they didn't have a choice of where to go, you know, because there was no free agency. So they were basically at the mercy of, of the league. And if the league wasn't taking certain precautions for safety, and in some cases they just didn't care, then those people's medical needs are so much greater than what will have to be afterwards. You do need guaranteed contracts. That shouldn't be a thing anymore where it's not guaranteed. And I understand the risk is, what if they get hurt? I get it. But at the same time, you need to be able to work the cap in such a way to where it won't necessarily penalize people for being able to give these players guaranteed contracts. And if they do get on IR with, like, a severe uh, medical injury that they're not, you know, just saying they're putting them on IR for this reason. There have to be certain kinds of that knee gets blown out, this happens, concussion protocol, all that stuff. The league should have a rule set in place where it won't necessarily set a franchise back in their cap because they're guaranteeing all their contracts. There's a way they can do it. They just don't want to people always find out a way to do what they want to do and if they're not getting it done it's just because they don't want to not because it's not possible
0: yeah because as we're seeing with a lot of the early retirements of great young athletes like chris borland who was on to a nice career we retire abruptly patrick willis and then most recently luke keekley who surprised everybody by retiring after the season so i think a lot of the younger athletes are starting to wake up now that there's more information out there
1: Yes, and I applaud them. I applaud them. They've given their bodies to football. some of them since high school they have been smart with their money they've invested properly they've done endorsement deals meeting with their financial planners and they're like well nine year career is nothing I've got my health that's why I just I look at people like Brett Favre in amazement because the fact that he played for 20 years now we haven't seen anything yet because he's still going to get older but the fact that he's played for 20 years I saw him in person last October that man looks like he's in the best shape of his life and I'm just like wow this guy is in his 50s um, looking like he's in the best shape of his life but he's a rarity the majority of these people especially if you play strong safety fullbacks kind of going away but if you play strong safety or fullback you're involved in every single play so yes get in get that contract that you need and get out if you're able to you can still walk and you still got all the function of your brain and everything like that football needs to stop being looked at as the goats play for 10 plus years no, we need to have a Gail Sayers approach. And if the player exemplifies greatness, but he only plays five years, we don't need to hold that against him as far as being in the Hall of Fame.
0: So you mean to tell me Gail Sayers is not in Canton? No, I think mean he is. I said we need
1: to take that approach. We need oh, to yeah. take more of that approach these days, right? Where if you look at a lot of people in Canton, you see these long stretches of careers. Dale Stairs is like an outlier, right? Because he only played for five years, right? Mm-hmm. I think he only played for five years. So, yeah, yeah he short, in-
0: he's in Canton.
1: Yeah, very short, but he's in Canton. The overarching message we need to be sending to players or players need to have is, I can still have a Hall of Fame career and not have to elongate my career and risk putting myself in more harm the older I get. That's my point. Right,
0: yeah. right. I agree with you on that, and I think that's going to be the debate as we see a lot of these players retiring early, especially with the case of Patrick Willis and Luke Kuechly, when they become Hall of Fame eligible. That they got the numbers and the stats to back it up, but their career wasn't long enough to justify a Hall of Fame career. But I think eventually that will change. Now, a few quick takes, and I'm going to go ahead and get you out of here. What do you think about the different pro sports leagues championing the use of cannabis? In recovery, because I know that former NBA players Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson, their podcast, All the Smoke, they're big champions of cannabis use for recovery for athletes as opposed to a lot of the medications that these team doctors prescribe. What are your take on that?
1: I think it's been long overdue that what somebody does on their own time, if it's not affecting their work, and it's not causing them to lose themselves and be introverted from society and to make toxic decisions, you know? I don't see a problem with especially using cannabis to help in the healing process because we already know that cannabis can help out with patients of certain diseases and things like that, so why wouldn't we want our athletes who we say we care about to have something that is natural in the environment versus something artificial and man-made. So that whole issue to me is not an issue. If the player is exhibiting toxic relationship behavior and cannot be a professional because of their use of cannabis, that's a problem. If a player is not doing that, then it's not the NFL's business. In my opinion.
0: Right. I definitely agree with that. What do you think about the split between Brady and New England with him going to Tampa? Was it more so of uh, Brady wanted to feel what it was like to be somewhere else after 20 21st year in one place? Or do you think it was kind of almost like how it was with the Bulls in the last dance where it was like that tension between the player and the coach where Belichick is more by the book and wasn't going to bend his will for anybody? Not even Tom Brady.
1: I think it was the latter. I believe the relationship started dwindling, at least you could see it publicly, during that season that they went and played the Eagles in the Super Bowl. I think that's when it kind of started, because I believe that was the season that he traded Garoppolo, correct? I think that um, might have been that. Yeah, season. the idea was that he probably wanted to trade Brady. Brady had Kraft on his side, and Kraft stepped in, and Belichick got mad. And uh yeah, I think that relationship was souring. I do believe they both handled it really professionally because had it been any other organization, that just would have exploded. I don't think it was wanting to change the scenery. Part of it might be that you know towards the end of his career, hey, let's just go take a shot and do something where it's not so stringent as the New England Patriots. Like, yes, we've won. I enjoy winning, but maybe me, I can call my own shots a little bit, and I have. To feel like I'm under Big Bad Belichick, but Big Bad Belichick wins Super Bowls. But I get it. I... I, Belichick wins Super Bowls. You can't. I want to have fun. I want to have fun winning Super Bowls. It probably was more of the relationship aspect of it.
0: And how about the whole thing down in Charlotte with the Panthers with Rivera getting canned, bringing in Rule, and then the way that they fumbled. Cam and released him late. I felt that Cam was kind of done dirty by management and not really been up front like, hey, we want to go into this new direction and we want to give you a chance to go into a contender because it's still shocking to me that he's still sitting out there nobody nobody's playing him, but I think he's also in limbo too because teams can't work him out because of what's going
1: on with COVID. That's why he's still in limbo. I have to mark my words, he's probably going to end up with the Patriots for a low, low price. And Morgan I do ben. think the Oregon... Bargain bin price? Say it one more time. Bargain bin price, you think? Yeah, bargain bin. That's, right. yeah, market. that's right. Yeah, he's going to get a bargain bin. He's going to get bargain bin. That's right.
0: get Right, but if he goes to a team and he's healthy and goes back to being a 2015 league MVP camp, you got a silver of a deal. And also, as of the recording of this podcast, Jameis Winston, I believe, is agreeing to terms with the Saints to back up uh, Breeze.
1: Wow, that's big for him because I know – even though we all know the 30 for 30 that he did yesterday, last year, um, for him to put his ego aside and do that I think is very beneficial. Plus, he's also looking at the long game. If he can impress Peyton with his work ethic this year, then when Breeze retires, he'll at least be in the conversation for what they're going to do at quarterback moving forward. I don't think he will be the success of the Breeze. That's the smartest play he could have done. I'm happy for him to do that because I'm not really a James Winston fan um, all around. I respect him for that. But, yeah, but going back to Cam, yeah, it, I don't think Rule did him dirty. It was absolutely, like you said, the organization did him dirty. Because I think Rule, in the back of his mind, when he took that job, he probably did want to start over with another quarterback and see if he could make it work. He didn't want somebody who coming off limping off the season. They should have gotten in a room from day one and discussed that. Rather than letting him say, oh, yeah, he's our quarterback. No. You brought in Teddy Bridgewater and then you just decided to cut him late. Like, that wasn't right. You know right. you did him wrong, especially after all he's done for that organization. As much as Keekly is popular, as much as, you know, Steve Smith has done, as much as everybody can, took them to the Super Bowl. That 15 and, that 14, 2, 15 in 1 season, that was incredible. That was, and that put Charlotte on the map. And they had him to thank for that. They at least should have shown him a little bit more mutual respect.
0: Because Cam very active in the community of Charlotte. His annual Thanksgiving giveaways and giveaway balls to the kids at games. He did a lot for the Charlotte community that we know about publicly. And a lot of it was not publicized of what he's done. But I felt like he could have gotten a better treatment by front an office. But what kind of gave me the inkling that Tepper wanted to move on from Cam was the fact of the All or Nothing series that showed the slide that it had that previous season and then him getting hurt the first two games of the year and not really playing. I think Temple was ready to move on from Cam because when you pay all that money, cash for the team, you have the right to do it how you want it. But Temper mm-hmm. strikes me more as the micromanager owner because you know he came from Pittsburgh. And he wants to pretty much mold the Panthers into the way that the Steelers are ranked.
1: Right, and so and just start from the and that was pretty by the draft, right? Didn't the Panthers majority defensive players?
0: Yeah, Panthers
1: all seven picks were defense.
0: So Rule wow.
1: really one wants to shape up that defense. Now tell me something real quick before we get off, because I was confused by this. Why in the world did the Panthers pass up that uh, safety? Isaiah Thomas, or Isaiah, hold on, what was that dude saying? Isaiah Simmons everything? from uh, Clemson. Yeah. Why yeah, did I they pass him up?
0: Um, I think the reason why they passed was because Rule was saying that they felt he would be more of a better fit on a team that was more established, more veteran-led. So that's why they went and got Derrick Brown, the tackle from Clemson to get paired with KK Short, who's coming off the injury to form up that middle. And I think that it would have been a better fit because the Panthers are going to go back to being a 4-3 defense as opposed to a 3-4 last year that uh, Ron Rivera had them under, which... I'm very happy that Rivera landed on his feet in D.C. after Carolina let him go. I think he's going to do well with in D.C.
1: I think so, too. And when I saw that hiring, I got a little scared. That's my division right there. Ron's going to get vindicated. If Snyder can step out of the way and let Ron do his thing, I believe he'll bring the Redskins back to some sort of respectability. I hope it's not anytime soon, but, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, I think that was a start hire.
0: Right, and, and another thing, too, after the draft was over, I thought the Panthers were going to snatch up Randy Moss' son, Thaddeus, as a um, undrafted free agent, but it turned out Washington ended up snatching him up, because I thought it would have been a perfect fit for Charlotte, you know, Joe Brady, who's the Panthers' new OC, came from LSU, where Thad was, then, of course, Charlotte ties, because, you know, Randy Moss lived in Charlotte, so that would have been perfect.
1: Wow, yeah, that's interesting, man. Let's hope we get a season this year, man, because those fun times are ahead.
0: I know, there's only so much repeat of NBA, hardwood, classic, classic NFL games that it takes. So hopefully everything will be straight by the fall so that we can get college football and pro football going. Now one more thing, and then we're gonna go ahead and um, get you on out. So do you think that it starts to come where we're gonna see college athletes getting paid and we're gonna see the four- and five-star recruits skip going to college and going straight to the G League as opposed to going to a school for free maybe one or two years and then going pro? I sure hope
1: so. I sure hope so, especially with the G League because there is no reason There is absolutely no reason on God's green earth for a student athlete to go play at a college for one year just because the rules are that you can't, you have to spend a year in college. That doesn't make sense. The only way that makes sense is for the college's benefit, and for the college's benefit only. doesn't benefit the player at all, unless they just want to be able to have on their resume that they played for Duke for one year and let them do a national championship. I, my whole thing is, if you're going to go be a student athlete, at least go give that school two or three years. Live that college experience. Be there with the band on the field, in the court, in the stadiums, you know, all that stuff. Be able to be a college athlete, right? And they do need to pay these players because... If they don't pay them, they need to at least let them make money off of their name and likeness. And that's where we could at least we could start with the happy medium because the fact that, let's say Joe Burrow can't sign an LSU helmet and get paid $500 for it is absolutely ridiculous. It's not right at all and it's actually hypocritical because you and I both know that when we were in a school for journalism and communication, if we wanted to actually work for a newspaper while we were in school, Maybe the bylaws said we couldn't make money, but nobody was snipping us down telling us we couldn't make money for articles that we wanted to freelance. It's the exact same thing.
0: Yeah, because I was saying, if you go ahead and pay the players and make it out in the open, you won't see all of the underhand dealings that goes on with recruitment. Like, we can go down the list of all the four or five-star recruits that got paid under the table. Parents get moved into houses, secret deals of a job. You've seen blue chips. You've seen the program right. and all of the stuff right. that goes on when it comes to recruiting. So I think if you make it out in the open and say, hey, we're going to pay you this much to come play for us,
1: you'll eliminate all of that stuff. Yep. And like I said before, money is there. The money is there. It's just they don't want to do it. Money yeah. will be there. They got boosters that give money, and those boosters run out of. Their whole point year over year is to never have any leftover expenses. So you mean to tell me that you couldn't get some of these boosters that give these hundreds of thousands of dollars to give even that much more money to say, hey, you know, if you give this, we might be able to land, you know, high school at the time, we might be able to land Reggie Bush. We might be able to do that. Now, the tricky part, and I do see the ethics of this, students should be choosing schools based on the school, not necessarily how much they get paid. So that would be a tricky part. You don't want just the school with the most money getting the best players, you know, to pay them the most. But I think where we could at least start is let those kids make money for their name and likeness because the majority of them are never going to go pro, and this is the only time that they have to shine. So let them make money while they're in college with their name and likeness. I
0: agree because there was a episode of The Shop with LeBron. They had Kevin Durant. And he was talking about how when he was at Texas, when went to the student store, he was able to see his jersey. And that was when he realized that this is a business. And then as we've seen with the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit against the NCAA, that still, after you graduated from school, they still own your name and likeness. Christian Laitner does not make a dime every March when they showed the highlight of him running up the court in the NCAA tournament. So I think at least what they should do is we we have your image while you're in school for us, but once you've graduated, it's reverted back to you. Now, are you familiar with the death penalty and the infamous SMU um experiment back in the not late 80s early 80s I, rather I am not alright they did a 30 for 30 on it called Pony Access so pretty much it was where boosters were paying players to come play at SMU and then one guy Stop getting paid, end up going on local TV, blowing the lid off of everything because they got slapped with penalties a couple of years before, and then they just got slapped again, and they ended up getting what's called the repeat violator series, a.k.a. the death penalty, where hmm. your program is dormant, is non-existent. So that's what oh, happened wow. with SMU, and then Eric Dickerson, who ended up playing at SMU, originally did not want to attend SMU. She, um well he went to smu but he ended up getting a trans am but it was funneled by texas a&m and he thought that hey i gotta go to texas a&m because they bribed me with a car so like to my point earlier if you eliminate all of that stuff by paying the guys up front it will eliminate all of the excess shady dealings that goes on now boosters and colleges have a whole lot of power. So much so that they can get coaches hired and fired. Now, in the case of Coach K at Duke, a little fun story for you. In the first couple of years that he was at Duke, the boosters, the Iron Duke, what they were called, they what they're called down there at Duke, they wanted to get rid of Coach K because they weren't winning right away. But the eighty at the time went to bat for Coach K, stuck his gun and we still have Coach K still coaching it too. Wow. And the thing that I found interesting in the last dance was that we all know that Dean Snuff, the late Dean Snuff, Coach of Carolina, the Tar Heels, run a team-oriented system. Jordan was actually considering coming back for a senior season, but Dean was like, "Nope, you're ready. Why stay? I thought
1: that was than, too. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, why stay other than to benefit me and to help us win another title? Where if you can go make some money for your kids and and make money for yourself, and if you're ready to go, go now." Now, that's the one thing I kind of appreciate about Coach Cal, Calipari out of Kentucky, but he kind of does it in a way where he reloads every year, where he's going to get four or five-star guys to come to Kentucky every year. You're just a one-year rental until you go to the NBA. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Man, yeah. That's
0: uh, yeah, but I appreciate you coming on and doing this interview with me. So, you got any shout-outs you want to give? And uh, how can people find out more about this too?
1: Yeah, so go to YouTube, and all you got to do is type in, List Tutoring. I should be the first thing that pops up. I've been working on my SEO religiously for two years. Trying to get that going. Just to be safe, type in Jeremy White List Tutoring and there's a orange bird that pops up. That's the logo. And if you could just give me a subscribe and, and check out the channel and see, you know, what you like, uh, if, what kind of content you think you want. Send it to friends that you know with uh, parents, with kids, especially now during this remote learning. We need as much information and help as we can get. So if you could go over there and just give me a, a, a like and the subscribe on those channels, mainly subscription. It goes a long way because eventually what I want to do is I want to start building a platform where I can really start to help more people, especially now during this time of COVID.
0: Definitely that and definitely want to give a big shout out to all frontline workers, especially those that's in the education profession. I was one of you and once an educator, all the educators, so salute to everybody that's going through what they're going through right now and we'll make it together. Ladies and gentlemen, a special Beyond the Cover interview with my good friend Jeremy White Jeremy thank you for doing this interview Thanks man I'll talk to you soon